This is the Hidden White Podcast, episode 758 with Bill Von Hippel, The Social Leap. Guys, I hope you enjoy this really cool conversation. G'day, g'day, g'day. Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. What's happening, guys? I hope you're doing well. Thank you for tuning in to another interview here on the show on the Hidden Why podcast. Guys, I've got a uh, fantastic interview to bring to you today. It is with William Von Hippel. He prefers Bill. And Bill is a psychologist. He is a professor of psychology down here at the University of Queensland in Australia, very near me. And he's written a book called The Social Leap. It's a book that explores how significant life challenges throughout our evolution have shaped some of the most fundamental aspects of our being. He uses the evolutionary science of our past and shares a new perspective on human psychology. And I think that's what I found really quite fascinating. It's not just a book of history. It's a book of history, biology, science, and how it has shaped um, some of these most fundamental aspects of our being. It's really fascinating. So I really enjoyed exploring this with Bill. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You can reach out to Bill, just Google him online, and make sure you pick up a copy of the book as well. I'll be doing a read and review of that sometime this year on the podcast as well. Guys, that's it from me. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a kick-ass day and a kick-ass life. And if I can help out in any way in the world, please do connect with me. You can reach me through my website and Facebook as well, probably the best way to get hold of me. Hope you enjoy your day. Enjoy this conversation. Until next time, cheers. G'day, Bill. Welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. How are you today? I'm good, Lee. Thanks for having me on. It's great that we could uh, finally make this happen, eh? We've been working on it for a while. You've been travelling yeah. around and I'm guessing to promote your book and things like that. Yeah, that's right. I was in the States for uh, several months, but it's great to be back home. Back home in Australia, in Brisbane. That's right. Yep, here in Brisbane. Yeah. How's the weather? Uh, for me, it's perfect. I, I grew up in Alaska, which so I was cold my entire childhood, and now all I want to do is be warm. You like it, huh? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice and warm here, everyone, in Australia, so... To give you a bit of an indication, we've had some few a few good storms recently as well, which is kind of nice for the rain. Yep, it's really hot and humid, which is exactly what I like. So, um, Bill, tell us a little bit about your work. You're here in Brisbane, um, a professor of psychology, I believe. Is that right? That's right. And you've just written a, a book that was published late last year um, titled The Social Leap, A New Evolutionary science or sorry the new revolutionary science behind who we are where we come from and what makes us happy which is an interesting and intriguing title in itself but um tell us how your work leaks to you writing this book so i'm a social psychologist and what i'm fundamentally interested in is the everyday social interactions that people have with each other what drives them, what helps us be successful at it, those, what makes it more difficult for us. And one of the questions that I'm fundamentally interested in is with regard to our social functioning is where do social skills come from? What makes us effective in persuasion? What makes us compelling to other people? That sort of thing. Hmm. And as I started working on this, I started to feel like only part of the answer is if we look at the way we are today, because the way we are today doesn't necessarily answer what, you know, kind of coincidentally, I would call the hidden why. The why you know, what's, behind why. Yeah, exactly. Mm. The why that you can't see. What's the underlying story about why these things work the way they do? And if you, if you study only the way we are today, you can get some purchase on it, but not, 
You can't get the same handle you can get on it if you understand where we came from, which can tell you a lot more about why we shape, why our psychology sh- um, was shaped to be the way that it is. Yeah, and that's what intrigued me about your book because it sort of um, has been suggested that it's similar to the likes of Sapiens, which looks at the history of humankind and um, guns, germs, and steel. Um, so you've really um, leapt back into our past and the evolution yeah. and the science behind uh, where we've come from and, and how that relates to the psychology today. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And so the you know guns, germs, and steel is a little bit more of a broad societal level view. It's a wonderful book. Uh, Sapiens, another wonderful book, is a little bit more of a historical view. And my book is really a psychological book, mm. uh, trying to take a psychological view. But of course, in order to understand our psychology, you have to know the context in which it sits. And so the book relies a great deal on um, archaeology, anthropology, paleoanthropology, um, biology, ecology, uh, and, and these, these related fields that all try to answer the same kinds of sets of evolutionary questions about where do we come from. In, in my particular case, the book focuses on basically the last six million years of our evolution. Yeah, only the last six, eh? Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to make it quick, you know. <laughs> um, cool, yeah, so I suppose that's, that's the fascination for me. I mean, as a psychologist, you're looking at a lot of these areas of um, science and evolution um, and how they, they create the, the psychology of the human mind today, I suppose, but... It's fascinating. How do you go about, you know, doing your research? Obviously, you're surrounded by a lot of um, great minds, but um, yeah, do you find that um, I don't know troublesome reaching into so many different fields and trying to piece it all together? Well, it is troublesome in the sense that I can never be as expert as I would like, right? Because I'm yeah. not an anthropologist, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a uh, archaeologist, and so I have to. Um, rely heavily on others to help interpret findings, to help me find the original research that I'm interested in in the first place. But with that said, as you pointed out, I am blessed by wonderful colleagues here at the University of Queensland. We have a Center for Psychology and Evolution that blends a very interdisciplinary approach to the problem. Mm. I work closely with biologists, economists, anthropologists, etc. And so for me, it's, it's a challenge and it's a little bit of a weakness, but it's also a lot of fun because I get to hear about people who are struggling with the exact same problems I'm struggling with, but from a very different angle. Yeah, well, okay. Cool. um, Yeah, it'd be just interesting to see how that book has all come together. And and I suppose for me, the first thing that comes to mind is how careful do you have to be with, you know, what you put into your work? Um, And because, I mean, you're putting a lot out there to give people a great description of how we've come to where we are today, but you know, what's to say it's the right information? And, and yeah, that yeah, that's a great point. And so, you know, the farther back we go in time, um, the more we have to rely on speculation because the fewer bits of data we have. Hmm. And so, what I've tried to do is. First of all, I of course it took about ten years to start building this general picture in my mind. So, ten ten years ago, I was a psychologist, just basically working on the way we are today, and had been doing so for almost twenty years. And then I started to think, all right, it's time to dig into our past. And that process took about ten years of reading and meeting with colleagues who know a lot, and I would say really stupid things, and they would friendly, they very kindly point out, well, that can't be, and here's why, and mm. and so I learned a ton along the way, and uh, and then. By the time I got to the end, I'd amassed a few thousand papers that I thought were really important that looked at this problem from a variety of different perspectives. And then what I really wanted to do was see if I could tell the most coherent, parsimonious, linear story that accounts for as much data as possible. And so by all means, 
if you read the book, you'll say, well, this is all laid out in a very linear fashion, but does everybody agree with this? And I would say, no, there's lots of argument about every single detail in there. Yeah. You know, that's the nature of academics, right? We debate that's everything. Yeah. But for me, this is the most linear story I can tell. And so it, it, you know, science is a process of getting it wrong and then fixing it. So no doubt I've got it wrong too. And hopefully I'm only wrong in some of the details and not wrong in the big picture. And then of course, in subsequent editions or whatever might happen, I or other authors will try to fix it and try to clarify it. But for now, I find the story that I tell there particularly compelling because for me, it draws the straightest line through the most data possible. Yeah, well said. So it's educational. I mean, it's it's backed by education and research. Um, so put together, and I think what I love is that it is information nonetheless. So we can read it, um, you know, as an individual. We can take on board what we will, and we can create our own arguments and and do our our further research where where necessary as well. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. What I love about these books, and I think that's why it's important to have them. So um, yeah. So what what made you write the book? I mean, was it just because this is where your work was leading you? What was the purpose of writing this book? And what do you hope people will, um, you know, get by reading it? Well, for me, what I hope people will get was a, is a better understanding of themselves. Because there is a lot that we can learn about who we are today by looking at where we came from. So why does it bother me so much if I get rejected by someone I barely even know, you know, on Facebook, for God's sake, or some other venue where somebody attacks me, uh, says mean things about me who I've never even met. You know, why does that bother me? That I should immediately go, well, I don't know this person. Why do I care? But but people don't react that way. No, and there's a million... Sucks. <laughs> yeah, rejection. Exactly. There's a million little things about us that are hard to understand until you start to say, well, wait a minute, where did we come from? And what did rejection mean to our ancestors? And if we can piece together that puzzle, and if rejection was costly to them, you know, our ancestors were never rejected by people they didn't know or people on Facebook. That didn't exist. If they got rejected, it was by somebody who was close to them. And maybe that had costs. And if it did have costs, then maybe it explains why we feel the way we do today. And so that's what the book is about, trying to piece together that whole puzzle to get a better understanding on who we are today, what makes us happy, that sort of thing, but simultaneously also trying to get some purchase on, well, what new predictions might come out of this? What could we learn from this um, with regard to, say, leadership or the human tendency to be innovative uh, with the way our social lives work? For me, it's, it's a great start if I can explain the way we are today, but it's much, much better if I can make new predictions that we can then study and see if they come true, because then that provides pretty good evidence that we're onto something that matters. And that's what's important, yeah, moving forward. Yeah, exactly. So take us back six million years ago. Um, sure. Because I know you talk about a few critical points um, mm-hmm. in the evolutionary past that sort of shaped um, the mind today or our psychology today. But um, yeah, it takes back where the where the beginning was for your research and and what you found there. Okay, so if we go back six, and I'll call it six, but it's really six or seven. It depends on exactly which data you believe in and how you interpolate. But we'll just call it six million years ago. Yeah. If you go back then. Basically, our we at that point have not yet. That's the point at which we split with our common ancestor, the chimpanzees. And so, six million years ago, we our ancestors and chimp ancestors are the same animals, and they're living in trees, probably much like chimpanzees do today. Mm. Now, the the problem with the rainforest is that it's very hot and humid, and things don't fossilize well. And so, we have very little evidence about what a chimp looked like six million years ago. But if we track the fossils that we've got since then, once we left the rainforest for the savanna and for a drier climate, we see an animal that looks very chimp-like. So in all probability, our common ancestors with chimps were a whole lot more like a chimpanzee than they were like us. 
And so then the question is, you can say, all right, well, if we're basically like a chimp, let's look at chimps and the way they live. Let's look at us and, and the demands that were placed on us and how we got there. And then the first question you'd ask yourself is, why on earth would a chimpanzee ever leave the rainforest? You know, it's the king of the canopy. Uh, chimps are so fast and so dangerous up in the trees that even leopards, who are superb tree climbers, won't attack them there if they're in groups. They're just too dangerous. And so they really sit at the top of the food chain there. And so here's an animal that's, that's doing great in the rainforest, but it comes down on the ground and it's anyone's dinner. Even hyenas can easily eat chimpanzees on the ground, despite the fact that there is zero threat in the trees. So you then have to ask, well, why on earth why would our ancestors, yeah. yeah, why would they go? And what the answer seems to be is that the, the great African rift valley was um, forming and working its way it was becoming bigger and working its way farther south at that time. It's basically this big geographic zipper where the east plate of Africa, the Somali plate, is separating from the most of the rest of Africa. Mm. It's, it's pulling apart and moving down to the lower right, um, up from the Red Sea down to the coast of Mozambique. And so what happened is, and the geology of this eludes me, even though I've read the papers, I don't understand them, but for whatever reasons, there's some thinning in the crust there and upwelling of the crust on the east side of the Rift Valley with the consequence that the land rises up in the air about a, you know, about a mile in the air with the consequence that you've got a lot of drying out and the rainforest slowly shifted to savanna. Mm. So, so the animals that our ancestors were the ones who lived on the east side of the Rift Valley, and they didn't leave the forest. The forest basically left them. Over a pretty long period of time, they had to find a way. Trees became fewer and farther between, and they had more and more need to go out on the grass to try to find something to eat because the few trees that were close together simply weren't enough to provide them uh, with enough food. What sort of period of time would that? Because I mean, when you think about it, you go, you know, chimps left the rainforest. You think, okay, well, they just jumped out of the rainforest and went to the savanna. Mm-hmm. But it was over obviously a longer period of time where, it, you know, gradually the rainforest depleted and they had to. Um, more and more go down to the the ground level to to hunt. Yeah, exactly right. And so I think that, uh, well, we know that the whole process, if you look at the entirety of East Africa, took many millions of years. But I suspect that the final push, which is what the one, you know, we'd have all crowded into that last bit of rainforest that was there, our ancestors would have, because that's where they belonged. And then when that final part started thinning out, they would have had to move to the ground. And again, that probably gave them a good million years to go from complete rainforest coverage of the last of them down to, well, really all we are is savanna with scattered trees. Mm. But I'm, I'm, I'm really just guessing there. I don't know. Yeah. But what I, what I do know is that when you then fast forward about, from the moment we left the trees, about three million years, we're now Australopithecines and we are bipedal. We, we walk upright on two legs and we can lock our knees. And we know that from some really impressive footprints that we had the good fortune were left in, in um, ash tracks that then solidified. And so... Sorry, what do you mean lock our knees? Well, uh, a chimpanzee, when it stands straight up on two legs, its, its knees are still bent. It physically can't straighten its leg. Gotcha. And for us, we have a huge advantage that our leg actually goes entirely straight, which allows us to p- place all of our weight literally on bone to bone. And there's a whole lot of advantages in, in platform strength and in, um, in not wasting energy and, um, and just speed of movement to be able to lock your knees uh, when you're walking on two legs. Mm. And so... We, that's a good sign that we were now fully bipedal, that we could do that by three million, three million years ago. And again, our chimpanzee cousins can't do that. Now, 
What that means is that sometime, we don't know the exact speed at which the rainforest disappeared, but sometime between 6 million years ago when we left and 3 million years ago when we're fully bipedal, the rainforest just had to be gone, and it had to be gone for a while, because an animal gains nothing by being bipedal in the rainforest. It's, you know, it's going to be living in trees. It, it only gains something if it's doing that on the ground. Mm, okay. Jeez, that's a long period of time, isn't it, really? It is. And, and so, what's remarkable? What's remarkable about that long period of time is that despite the fact that a good three million years have gone by now since we've separated with chimpanzees, and by the way, the other sort of decent piece of evidence that probably the forest was gone was that our genetic, the genetic data suggests that we pretty much split from chimps about six million years ago. So if the rainforest really was lasting longer than that, we wouldn't have split. The split would have been later. So in, in all probability, the forest is basically gone by six million years ago. And by three million years ago, we're fully bipedal, maybe even by four or more. But, but we don't know that because we don't have good data. And of course, at that point in time, there's lots of what we call hominins, which are various ancestral forms. Uh, running around in, in, in lots of different shapes and sizes. We have these various cousin species, or I guess you call them aunties and uncles, who never quite turned into us. But there's a proliferation of them, and probably some were bipedal and probably some weren't. Hmm. But, but at any rate, Australopithecus is now bipedal, and with that comes all sorts of interesting changes in their body. Their waist stretches out, their shoulders can start rotating more readily, their musculature, instead of being vertically aligned like a chimpanzee to help it climb up trees, becomes laterally aligned to deal with the world that's side to side. And their arms and, and wrists and elbows become a lot more flexible because they're not using them as a platform for all their weight anymore. So all those things are a byproduct of being bipedal, but they have the really interesting advantage that they facilitate throwing. Mm. So a chimpanzee does not throw very well. They typically use two hands. They typically throw from over their head. And even though they're super strong for their weight, much stronger than we are, they, um, their aim is terrible and they don't throw very hard. If humans throw incredibly well, and we typically, of course, do it with one hand, um, and we, you know, throwing the sort of overhand motion is the most common way of doing it. Now, it turns out that all those changes that come with bipedalism facilitate throwing because the process of throwing, you know, if you go to a beach and watch people toss a frisbee, it doesn't really tell you much. But if you watch a hunter-gatherer throw or a gridiron player throw or a baseball player throw or a cricketer throw, you'll, the, the person who is a really good thrower will step forward with the opposite foot and then they'll start to pivot their hips, then they'll start to pivot their shoulders, their arm will start to come through and at the very end their wrist kind of snaps across. Mm. That motion turns out to release an enormous amount of elastic energy that's stored in the stretching of our tendons, muscles, and ligaments across our entire body. And it's that rotation that allows that to be so effective. Chimpanzees can't do that because their musculature doesn't line up the right way and their joints are too stiff. By australopithecines, we have the capacity to do that almost in full. Now, the reason that that matters is because throwing enables us to what creates for us the single most important military invention in history, which is the capacity to kill at a distance. There's, uh, there's no other animal that can do that, and the importance of that can't be underestimated because here we are a relatively small animal surrounded by much bigger and more deadly animals, but a bunch of small animals who can throw, who can kill at a distance, can protect themselves from a much larger and more deadly animal that otherwise, you know, even if, even if you and a hundred of our friends... Yeah, we decided to attack a lion with knives. I suppose we could eventually kill it. But whoever got there first is going to die. Whereas if we can kill it from a distance, we, from a position of relative safety, we can now pelt this animal with stones yeah. and drive it away or kill it. 
Well, when did um, fire become part of all this? So oh, fire is way later. It so, is. So, okay. Yeah. So not well, way is a strong term. So one more thing, and then I'll pop to fire. So basically what that means is that by because we can kill at a distance, we've now gained this important ability, but it, there's it doesn't come just on just physically. One Australopithecines throwing stones is not going to drive anything away, certainly not a lion or a leopard. So they have to start working together. They have to yeah. all throw stones together. And chimpanzees don't do that. They don't work well together. So that would have been the big psychological change that got everything going. It would have been a moment of where cooperation suddenly was more important than competition and where what was in the group's interest is now in the individual's interest as well. So chimpanzees, if they're hunting, um, do they hunt together? They do hunt together, but it's like wild chaos, and basically they pretty much only do it when they're hunting monkeys, and they do it so they can kind of come in at every angle and have a better chance of getting the monkeys. But there's nothing coordinated about it. Many of them participate, and many just sit there and watch the chaos. And so they, they're fundamentally oriented toward each other in a competitive fashion, and to do this sort of collective stoning, this, this collective action that would have mm. been necessary, they would have had to change that fundamental orientation toward a more cooperative one. So that's where we changed our psychology of operating. Exactly. Power. Exactly. And so, and, and that's why the book is called The Social Leap. It's this notion that by leaping out of the rainforest, so to speak, which was really more of a shove than a leap anyway, but we, our solution to the problem was a social one. Because once we realized we could work together, and once we were put in a situation where working together actually was more effective than competing with each other, everything took off. So if you look at the a brain of an Australopithecus, in three million years, it's only gained about 75 grams of brain matter over a chimpanzee. But now in the next million and a half years, as we turn into Homo erectus and we start to control fire, we now more than double that brain size. And so we add another almost half a kilo. And so the why did all that brain power come on board then? Well, all sorts of new opportunities open up once you can socially work together. Mm. You know, groups can have emergent properties. We can go beyond just all throwing rocks together to making plans. We can start having division of labor. All sorts of things can actually gain you new advantages as a group that you wouldn't be able to get as a single individual. And so for the first time in our history, we now can actually pay the price that the big brain costs. Because, you know, our brains use up 20% of our metabolic energy, whether we're watching TV or, you know, solving complicated problems. That's a big burden on our ancestors who have to hunt every calorie that they eat or dig up every calorie that they eat. Mm. And so to develop a big brain like ours, you've got to get a big benefit for it. And what these data suggest is not until we were starting to work together could we see in a benefit that was important enough to warrant us to develop such a big brain. So these are the subshoots of chimpanzees once we came down um, onto the plains of the savannah, you know, you said there was many. Yes. Was it only us that sort of came through? Because there's a big gap there between chimpanzees and what we know of as modern humans now. Um, obviously, there's different species, um, you know, Homo sapiens, rectus, etc. Um, later on, but a lot of the, between chimpanzees and what is it, Homo erectus? Yes. Um, there are many different others. Yeah. So that coming oh, together right. was that. That survival, the other ones just vanished and Yeah, they did, unfortunately. And so we don't know very much we don't even know don't which one of those of that, yeah we, we we can't yet do the dna work to know which one of those are our direct ancestors but there's a real proliferation of species some look like they might be specialists they had, for example there was a particular species with an enormous jaw that people thought well maybe that's for cracking nuts we don't really know of course we find little bits and bobs of them of them everywhere we found lots and lots of these different species that uh 
that came between chimpanzees and Homo erectus. What we don't know is which, well, which one is our direct ancestor? You know, I, I suspect it's Australopithecus. Uh, Australopithecus afarensis in particular is in the right place at the right time, mm. starting to show the um, increase in brain power. Uh, there, there's some uh, uh, controversial evidence that they might even be using stone tools um, not just using them like a chimp does to crack things, but sharpening them, shaping them, which yeah. chimpanzees don't do. And then the the problem is that it's not until we get to Homo uh, erectus, really, maybe Homo habilis, but the next one, Homo erectus, a little less than two million years ago, where we can have pretty good confidence. All right, that's our direct ancestor. All sorts of things are in place that link clearly to us and that show a big separation with our past. Right. Okay. So, so that sort of bushy, branchy tree that comes immediately after we left uh, chimpanzees and, and we're on the savanna, with most of them being dead ends, we're not even sure which one of those happened to lead to us. Mm, right. And you can only imagine it taking quite a bit of time for um, the chimpanzees to start working together in that manner and, and learning yeah. to cooperate and, and um, share. Well, that's right. And so, you know, once we had the bipedalism in place and once we had the capacity to throw, I suspect it was literally thousands or even maybe millions of times animals chased us across the savanna that we all turned and ran anyway. And then one day, a couple of them threw and they thought, well, then then I had to run. But that actually kind of worked. And a couple of them saw it and they yeah. learned. And, you know, the psychology slowly shifted over time because in our ancestral past, what was in the individual's interest in, in our line, in the primate line, what was in the individual's interest was not necessarily in the group's interest. But when you can combine together in mutual defense by throwing, then the group's interest actually matches the individual's interest perfectly. It will be safer for all of us if we all throw together than if some of us run and some of us throw. And so for the first time we see that change. Now you can still see that change in our psychology or in our physiology compared to a chimp. So if you look at a chimp's eyes, they basically, with rare exceptions, they're, they're outside of their eyes is all brown. So you can't really tell where it's looking. But it, ours have evolved to be white on the outside, the sclera of our eyes. And that's literally advertising the direction of our gaze, which is, of course, telling you something about what I'm thinking. Hmm. And, and the fact that those differ tells you that chimpanzees don't want fellow chimps to know where they're looking because they know that their fellow chimps will probably compete with them to get it first. Whereas our ancestors wanted their fellow group members to know where they're looking because they would probably help them get it. We would never advertise that information if it didn't help us individually. And mm. so it's really good evidence that the group and the individual, their interests are becoming aligned. Yeah, it's interesting. So at that point in time, um, what, looking back three, two, three million years ago, mm -hmm. what sort of psychological implications do you see that we still carry from that transition till today? Well, so the the big thing, of course, will be that, that shift to a stronger group orientation. But we do know that that animal, the Australopithecines, were much closer to chimpanzees. And so, for example, chimpanzees cannot envision a world with unfelt needs. So if they're hungry right now, they can try to think, well, how do I solve this? And they can work toward getting some food. So they're kind of planning for the immediate future. But if they're not hungry, they can't imagine ever being hungry again. And this seems really bizarre to us because it's, of course, so easily imagined tomorrow will be different from today and I need to be prepared for that. But we, the Australopithecines, there's no evidence that suggests that they could do this either. And even their next ancestors after them, Homo habilis, who, invent, who probably invented these, their earliest stone tools, 
they also showed no signs of being able to plan for the future for unfelt needs. And the only evidence, we have very little evidence, of course, but what we do see is that the, the tools that they built, they're called Oldowan tools, and they're basically sharpened stones. And we never have found any evidence of these tools being carried at any great distance from where they're quarried and made. And mm-hmm. so what that suggests is an animal who sharpens a, a rock, uses it to cut open something to eat, and then chucks it away thinking, well, I'll never need that again. Right. And of course, mm-hmm. they don't have pockets, so we don't know for sure that they, they may have thought, gee, I wish I could use this tomorrow, but I can't. I can't carry it, but probably not. The, um, once we get to Homo erectus, we see them invent a much more complicated tool. It's much more than these simple sharpened stones. There are these lovely bifacial hand axes that uh, if you look at them, you immediately recognize that it's, it's been designed by a sentient being. And, you also, and they also, we find them at great distances from where they're acquired and made. And so now we see an animal that can start to plan for the future. It's not even, calling an animal is not even quite, well, we're all animals, of course, but it's, it looks much more like us than it looks so like. What part of the brain has been developed there then? Well, it, it seems to be frontal lobes. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. And we, we, of course, don't know exactly what was going on in their brains. But what we can do is we, uh, we take these two kinds of tools, these Oldowan tools and these Acheulean tools, and we teach people to make them today. And then we put them in an fMRI machine, uh, you know, one of those magnets that can track blood flow in your brain to see where you're thinking. And when you, when you build an Oldowan tool, the one that Homo habilis could do and maybe even Australopithecines, when you work on that... And, and we ask them, well, what would you do next? What decision would you do next in, in shaping this tool? What we see is lighting up in their brain is the motor cortex and premotor cortex. So it's basically planning movements. When you then look at an Acheulean tool, which our Homo erectus ancestors invented, yeah. and you say, what, what are you going to do next? All sorts of areas of the frontal lobes light up. And those are the planning part of your brain. And so that's the big disconnect that so we now have developed this part of our brain that literally allows us to simulate the future. And we don't realize how incredibly important this is until we look at either humans who have lost that capability or other animals that can't do that. And we see them just completely stymied by problems that would be no difficulty for us at all. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. So it's really lovely evidence that in all probability, what we've got, not only do we see the differences in the way our brains look and the shape of our skull, but in all probability, we've been really leaning hard on that frontal area of our brain that gives us volitional control over our behavior, that allows us to plan, to switch from one task to another. And all of those things would have been mission critical for the early social beings, you know, the sort of homo habilis, homo erectus, who are starting to think, well, all right, if we're going to hunt these large beasts, we've got to have a plan and you have to do this and I'll do that. And so it's this division of labor planning that gave, that made our group so incredibly effective. And so by so the that's time why get, it's developed is because we have to start working together and cooperating and becoming more strategic with the future rather than just going out there and hunting when we're hungry. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Not just be more strategic, but it, you, you, until you really think about it, it's amazing how hard it is to solve problems of this sort. So let me give you an example. This is the one that really blew my mind and got me thinking about this a great deal. Mm-hmm. And so Jane Goodall uh, writes about this incident in her book, um, I'm blanking on the name of the book, but Thomas Sudendorf discusses it in his lovely book, The Gap, and that's where I first found it, and then went back and read Goodall. And she's talking about observing this new chimp mother one day in the forest. The mother's name is Melissa, and she has this little baby, Jeannie. And it's kind of a savage story, so my apologies in advance. And, and what happens is uh, there's a psychopathic mother-daughter pair in her group um, named Passion and Palm. And the, uh, 
you know, who knows what's wrong with him, but the, the daughter is what we call a sub-adult. She's almost ready to go off on her own, so she's basically as big and strong as an adult. And Passion and Palm have gotten upon themselves. They've got this new idea that they're going to attack mothers of new babies and try to kill and eat the baby. And so Melissa's there with her baby, and Passion and Palm come up on her from both sides, and they um, immediately ferociously attack her. Now, she, of course, does everything she can to defend her infant. It's only three weeks old. And so, you know, basically chimpanzees have four hands. So she's defending herself with three but holding her chimp, her baby, with one. And, of course, there's eight hands against her and lots of big teeth. And so she fights as best she can, but they, they bite the heck out of her. They, they're reaching in to get the baby, and they finally bite the baby. They, they bite her up so badly that she, you know, she just loses. And they pull the baby out of her arms and climb up into a tree and start eating it. Well, that's already a gruesome story. But mm. what really threw me about this story was what happened next. And so here they are. They're literally in the tree eating her baby. And, and, and she's all bit up. She's bleeding badly. She survives this, but probably not by much. What did she do? Well, I, I, was, I never could have guessed what she did next. And what she did is she walks up to them and extends a hand and reconciles with them. You know, she goes out to hold their hand. And then she does it again 10 minutes later. And they're literally eating her baby right in front of her. Hmm. And I was just completely blown away. I was like, why on earth would, would she do this? You know, for me, I might pretend to reconcile with them. But that night when they go to sleep or as soon as I heal, I'm taking a big stick and bashing their brains in. You know, I'm going to do something. <laughs> But of course, a chimpanzee can't plan more than one step ahead. And so all, she wants to attack them, but there are two of them and they're stronger than she is. She's got no choice. So it's either reconcile or attack. There's no third alternative where I'll pretend to do this and then I'll do that. You know, the kind of simulating uh, the future that we do with these scenarios that we build. And so once you realize how um, incapacitated you are when you don't have that ability, you've got no ability to plan without enacting. And so a chimpanzee can can do a complicated series of moves, but it can only do it by trying one and then trying whatever's next and trying whatever's next. And if you're going to try to kill two animals who are stronger than you, you can't just start out and see how it goes. You have to have an elaborate plan that you've worked out. And so, you know, in my case, maybe I would pretend to reconcile and then I'd call, I'd come by you later and say, Hey Lee, they ate your baby last year. They ate mine this year. Let's solve this problem once and for all. And you'd be, I'm with you brother. And we'd take care of it. And so the the inability to the ability to plan you know what we gain from that is so incredibly important this is actually in my mind one of the big disruptors of our modern life because we actually li- spend so much time in the future just because it's so important to our ancestors this ability to plan that it's hard to actually enjoy the present that we're in at the moment mm. and so you can see how this this gift that evolution gave us this capacity to simulate the future you know, that, that was hugely important. It allowed us to be a success on the savanna, even though we're small and weak. We could suddenly start hunting and eating animals that should have been our predators. They were bigger and stronger than us. But, you know, evolution gives with one hand and takes with another. And now we end up spending a great deal of our life in the future rather than necessarily focusing on the present and enjoying the moment that's that we're in. That's pretty insightful. <laughs> like that's, yeah. um... Well, it blew me away when this all came together. Well, because a lot of us, you know, want that these days. I mean, we're talking about it more and more as trying to be more present and here, and yet um, that's not how we're now designed. We're designed to plan for the future and think about the future and constantly live in the future. Yeah, that's right. And so the thing is that 
we, we try these traditions. We try to meditate. We try to focus on the now. And you can learn to do it, but it's not easy because you're literally shutting down something that evolution gave you and that's so effective that evolution ensured you do it a lot. And it's not – keep in mind, it's also the past. You know, we, if, if you ask yourself, why do I remember anything? Well, evolution doesn't care for you to sit around and reminisce by the fire. Remembering is important because it helps you plan for the future. Yeah. And so our lives are spent, you know, with some decent percentage in the now, but a huge percentage going in the past and going in the future and then bouncing back and forth between those two because that's how we use our prior experience in order to build a better tomorrow for ourselves. Mm. That's interesting, huh? So yeah, it is interesting. It's a little bit, dis- you know, it's a little disturbing too. And, and I, I think about how many times I've, you know, had a great meal and then I get caught up in worrying about tomorrow or what I'm going to do next. And I don't even enjoy the food I'm eating. I might as well be eating sawdust because my mind is so elsewhere mm. that I pay no attention to it. Mm. And so there's a huge cost to this. I mean, you, you know, I, I haven't, my, I can't, I can't quiet my mind very well. I'm not good at meditating. I know some people can with, with a lot of practice can do this much better, but I think it's important that we do this whenever we can, that we try to draw ourselves into the present. Yeah. It's interesting too. Like a lot of the adventures, as you said, like most of the adventures throughout evolution, yes, while they benefit in many ways, there's also some, some drawbacks or negatives. So it's yeah. to it all. Absolutely. And so, you know, the, the easiest one to imagine is that the moment that you're really good at thinking about the future, you can also think about a couple of really bad things. A, I might get eaten tomorrow, and B, I will eventually die. And those two thoughts are highly anxiety-provoking. And so, you know, dogs and chimps and other animals, to the best we can tell, they don't suffer from anxiety problems because they live in the present. But we can suffer from huge anxiety problems because we live in the future. And if the future is an intimidating place, well, fair enough, it it's, makes sense that you'd be anxious. Or if it's a terrible place, it makes sense you'd be depressed. That's why you can see a gazelle, you know, getting chased by a lion and right. running for right. its life. And then five minutes later, once the lion's fed on some other gazelle, the yeah. gazelle's just down the, the paddocks there um, eating some grass. I know, and it looks totally calm. And I'd be like, you know, I would, I'd be telling that story for the next three weeks. But of course, Freaking you get chased out, every planning, day. Plotting, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm, cool. And you know, gazelles end up being lion meat a lot because they aren't good at planning, and we end up lions end up being our food because we are good at planning. So we gained a lot from that, but we certainly lose that sense of calm that a gazelle can have five minutes later. So the psychology, the psychological, um, I'm struggling with my words. Sure. The the psychological impact that that has on today or the I guess the findings of that would help you suggest that we need to sort of practice meditation mindfulness become more present well I think it depends on it you you have to ask yourself is that is that the right strategy for you because the one thing about people is that you know there's enormous individual differences in all these mental proclivities and tendencies and so um, some people are really susceptible to anxiety. Other people, you know, you kind of wish they'd worry a little bit more about the future. And so we all have so the same. It depends on where you are you know, in life. Exactly. We all have the same ability to think to the future, but we have very different tendencies to do so. But if you find yourself worrying a lot about tomorrow, then it's a very good sign that uh, learning to meditate might be an excellent strategy for you. And if you're worried about nothing at all and you're always just calm and cruisy and right here. Right. Right. Then maybe you should actually be worrying a little bit more about tomorrow. Yeah, you should be looking, you know, what's my super doing? Um, and so, you know, everybody, there's trade-offs on everything. Yeah, People who are anxious tend to be pretty well prepared. People who are really living in the moment often find themselves flipping burgers when they're 65 because they haven't prepared very well. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So what was the next major social leap? 
So the, the next big step is actually transitioning from these australopithecines who are, who are learning to defend themselves and, um, you know, still have a chimp-like brain to Homo erectus. Mm. And you would ask that question, well, when do we control fire? So it's, we don't know exactly when, but we do know that it goes back at least a million, million years. We found evidence for controlled fire in caves in South Africa that's now a million years old. Now, that's super interesting because... Uh, Richard Wrangham, who's an anthropologist at Harvard, has argued in his really lovely book, Catching Fire, that this control of fire probably goes back way earlier than we can find it, simply because that's the only way we could extract enough nutrients from our food in order to support this really large brain that we've been discussing. So if you, if you compare our gut and our brain to the gut and brain of the other great apes, what you see is they've got a whole lot of gut and not much brain. And we've got a whole lot of brain and not much gut. And what that tells you is that we're, we're much more efficient at extracting nutrients from our food than they are because we're supporting this enormous brain without that big of a digestive system. Now, how on earth could we do that? Well, one way that we do that is our diet is much more meat-intensive than theirs because meat has way more calories than plant matter does. And then what Rangham argues is that the second piece to that puzzle is the control of fire. And it turns out that when you cook food, the nutrients in that food become a lot more accessible to you. The calories become more accessible to you. And so it's much easier for human beings to live off cooked food than it is for us to live off raw food. Mm. And in fact, um, people who want to go on diets often go on raw food diets simply because they can eat a whole lot of stuff and poop most of it out because it's hard to extract the calories. So the, what Rangham argues, and, and I think he's right, is that that transition to Homo erectus was really the control of fire. And so it's a really interesting case where our invention, our, our capacity to control fire, then allowed us to change our very biological nature. It allowed us to become more brainy and less brawny and less gut because we could now release the nutrients from meat that we caught. And and, you know, you, it doesn't, even if you're, you know, a modern vegetarian, th imagine eating a raw potato compared to a cooked potato. There's, there's no comparison. You bite into a raw potato and it's like you're eating dirt. You bite into a cooked potato and it's delicious. Mm. Same, of course, holds for meat. I, I, I'm, I'm very carnivorous and I love the smell of cooked bacon, cooking steak. When it's raw, it's almost disgusting. And, and that's, what that's telling you is that your olfactory system is saying, yeah, that's not really good for you yet. And then once you cook it, ooh, this is really good. Hmm. Hmm. Their things do taste better when they're cooked. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when we came out of the rainforests and onto the land, and I've heard different stories, I guess, of of the history here as well. Uh -huh. uh, just putting the, the pieces as you talk, you know, it would have been hard for us originally in the savanna to hunt um, until we became really good at cooperating together and planning, and and you know, more methodological behind mm -hmm. our our hunt. We mm -hmm. would have perhaps not eaten the amount of meat we ate. That's um, right. We would have eaten more, you know, plants, I suppose. Yes, and absolutely. perhaps even grazing um, on, uh, I believe, you know, the story goes, we, we got into the bone marrow um, of dead carcasses once the lions or whatever went away. Yeah, so the, the question is exactly what, what sort of scavenging did we do and what did we eat? And there's no question we were highly omnivorous. And if you look at... Um, the the bone structure of our our the finds that we do have you can look at what kind of carbons uh, what forms of carbon are in their bones and we know different forms of carbon come from different kinds of plant life mm. and we know different forms of material come from animal life I'm not expert on this stuff but what the data do show is highly omnivorous not a very heavy meat diet 
um, at least until you get to Homo erectus. And so, right. and so as, expect- our, as our brain grew and it took up more of our energy, which makes sense because we're now cooperating, working together. Right. We, we had the capacity. We, we needed to, well, not only we had the capacity, but we needed the nutrients to, to support exactly. that brain. Yeah, those two things ramped up together. They had this self-perpetuating mm. sort of virtuous cycle, you might call it, whereby getting a little smarter made us a bit better hunters. Being a bit better hunters gave us the capacity to be a bit smarter. And so our metabolism sped up. We became more effective at storing fat. And all that gives you a little bit of insurance to keep running such a big brain. And it's, you know, people argue a lot about whether maybe even Homo erectus were primarily scavengers. And I'm sure they did their fair share of scavenging. But if you look at on the, bone, the, the cut marks on the bones that are made by Homo erectus's tools, you often find them up on the thigh bones of animals that they've killed. And if you ever look at a lion kill and what you might scavenge from it, there's never anything left on the thigh bone. The lions will immediately eat the contents of the stomach and some of the internal organs, and then the next thing to go, or leopards or whatever, the next thing to go is the upper thigh bone because that's where uh, there's an enormous amount of meat. And so if we were scavenging, you would very rarely see cut marks from our tools up on the thigh bones of these animals. You'd see them down by their hooves where the lions have left, you know, scrappy little bits. Or you'd see it on the animal's face where there's mm. scrappy little bits. But you don't. And so what well, you do sometimes, of course. Yeah. But so what that tells you, though, is that probably a lot of the meat that Homo erectus was eating, they were directly hunting themselves. It's, it's Yes, they are breaking bones and eating the bone marrow, of course. That's a very rich source of calories. But they're also um, cutting up meat that they themselves, on an animal that they almost assuredly brought down themselves. Yeah, and I assume that you know, it took a time for us to get to that, that level where we were much more skillful at, at hunting and capturing our intro. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we see lots of kills uh, of Homo erectus throughout Europe where there'll they'll be elephant butchering sites, horse butchering sites, and the um, rhinos. It looks like our ancestors were hunting some, some big animals and some fast animals and, and almost assuredly would have required that they work together really effectively mm. if they're going to make something like that work. Mm. So there comes the uh, introduction of fire, and I believe fire was you know, a good thing for, for – keeping ourselves safe at night as well. Well, that's right. So imagine life before fire. You know, what you're eating is raw, nasty roadkill for dinner. You know, nothing you can cook up. You're, when you go back to your cave, it's cold and dark and wet and scary because, you know, we don't see very well at night and all the other animals, the nocturnal beasts can see very well. That's their job. Mm. And so they would have been, it would not have been that hard to hunt us. And so we'd have been huddled close together, probably with wooden spears and probably pretty scared. But the moment we could control fire, now our cave is warm. Other animals are afraid to come to it. Our food is cooked for us. It provided us with this, this kind of safe nest that would allow us to um, keep the young there. To It just made us an incredibly more effective species. Mm. And I suppose that that light would have been con- conducive for storytelling and, and the light. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. And so it, it then, it thereby extended our daytime. So prior to the control of fire, you know, when nighttime comes, you know, you can sort of sit around kind of huddled and scared together, but what are you going to do? 
when now when nighttime comes, you can gather around the fire quite safely, and this gives people an opportunity to do what people tend to do naturally, which is chit-chat. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting things is if you look at the conversations of hunter-gatherers when they're around the fire at the end of the day versus when they're dur during the day and kind of chatting with each other, the conversations differ. During the day, people tend to focus on the sort of economic necessities of the time and lots of gossip about who did what to whom. So social stuff. At nighttime, the social stuff keeps going, but the, the economics of the day tends to disappear, and people often shift and start to tell stories as they gather around the fire. And those stories typically are about grand adventures and big things, and, and what they really do is they teach you how to live your life in that group, right? So if, I, if you get up there and you tell us that great story about how you got attacked by a leopard, but through your cleverness or resourcefulness you survived— well, I really want to hear that story because I can learn without getting bit even once how to deal with a leopard. Mm. So it, it's this vicarious learning that storytelling gave us that really literally might have been instigated by the control of fire. So fire not only saved us from predators, it not only gave us more, you know, more nutritious food, but it may have also created the storytelling tradition that allowed us to learn from each other and create what we call cumulative culture, which is this idea that every generation they know literally more than the generation before them. They can ratchet on the knowledge Sharing of knowledge. Mm -hmm. people exactly by just telling stories. Mm. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? It'd be good to go, go through the time and uh, see it all happen. Yeah, it would be super exciting to have a time machine, but you know, you'd be really torn which way you should go, backward or forward. <laughs> um, psychologically, what what does this sort of period, you know, from your research, uh, show us as far as how we operate today? So the. In this period of time, once you are now homo erectus and your groups have emergent properties, you can, your division of labor, you um, can plan for the future. Yeah. No longer are any of the great predators a risk to you anymore. I mean, individually, you'll still have people getting randomly killed, of course, which is not a good thing. But as a group level, they're no longer a threat to you. If a mastodon comes to your group, well, there's mastodon for dinner tonight. If a saber-toothed tiger or a lion comes, that's what you're eating tonight. So it's... Suddenly, the big predators on the savanna are no longer a threat to us. But that doesn't mean that there's no longer any threats out there. Because, in fact, there's now one big threat that never used to be a threat at all. And that's other groups of Homo erectus. Mm. Because they, too, have the capacity to plan for the future. They, too, have the division of labor. Right. And they may think that the valley that we're living in is more fun than the valley they're living in. And they may think that rather than asking us for it, that there's more of them and maybe they should just take it. And so we get to this super important change in our psychology, which is once we get to australopithecine, super important change one is becoming cooperative with each other because right. now we all need to work together in service of collective action to defend ourselves by throwing stones. But now once we're at Homo erectus, we now still need to cooperate with each other. That's absolutely just as important as it always was, if not more so. But we now see the value of not necessarily cooperating with other groups of Homo erectus because they may be friendly. They may want to trade, um, you know, husbands and wives and help, you know, avoid inbreeding. They may want to trade neat foods and things that they've made and gathered, but they may want to kill us and take our stuff. And so the automatic cooperative tendency that we had evolved for our group members, suddenly we start to evolve a tendency not to show that cooperation with members of other groups because we just don't know if they're friend or foe. And they're literally the most dangerous other animal on the planet, which is other groups of us. And so from here, unfortunately, you get this very strong tendency toward tribalism, toward prejudice, toward ethnocentrism, toward discrimination, because anyone who's different from you, if they look a little different, if they dress a little different, if they talk a little different, 
you know, they are, they're potentially a threat. And so we're not necessarily going to dislike them, but we're very ready to do so if we see at any level that we've come into conflict. Interesting. So we went from individual, and I assume when we're very much individual, there was still hate um, and aggression and those things. But then when we went to collectively working together in cooperation, they become collective hate and discrimination and aggression. Yeah, that's right. And so what's interesting is that chimpanzees are way more aggressive than we are within their own groups. And so if you count the number of of physical aggression incidences in a group of chimps, and then you count the number of similar physical aggression in groups of human hunter-gatherers, so there's no police, there's no law enforcement, you can just do what you want, you find that chimpanzees are about 500 times more aggressive than we are. Mm. But now you count the incidences of intergroup competition when chimps will attack other groups of chimps and you count human intergroup competition and the ratio is one to one we've tamed ourselves dramatically when it comes to being within our group but we're absolutely just as violent as we always were when it comes to between groups that's interesting yeah well so and and so the that was probably the big psychological event that Mm. But, you know, there's there's big brain gains that Homer Erectus showed and, and this capacity to plan and all that sort of thing. But the big change in our psychology that we still see today is this unfortunate leftover tribalism. It, it, it didn't just matter for Homo Erectus either. When you look at Homo sapiens, you see the exact same story. Hunter-gatherers often come into conflict with each other. That conflict is often deadly. And so they're very friendly and cooperative within their group. But that friendliness and cooperation does not necessarily extend to members of other groups. That's it might. It might. It's a, it's, a, it's a tendency, it's a preparedness to go either way. Hmm. And, and so the good news is that we don't automatically hate them. We're automatically unsure about them, but we also automatically like us. And that, enough, that alone is enough to create discrimination and prejudice because we favor our own group and we're neutral to the out group, sometimes help, sometimes hurt. Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating. Now, there was, it, there's, it one more, remarkable. One more, um, well, there's one more problem that... that, that Came, I doubt, well, I don't know if it would have come about with Homo erectus or Homo sapiens, but we certainly can see evidence mm. of this in Homo sapiens. And that is that not only are other groups potentially a threat because they might want to take what we own by force, but they're also potentially a threat because they might carry pathogens that we're not exposed to. So if you and I are Homo erectus living way, or Homo sapiens either way, living way up north, well, there's not very many pathogens in our environment. And so probably even though you live 20 miles from me, whatever you expose yourself to I have to and so you're not really going to make me sick but if you and I live down near the tropics there's so many different pathogens and they vary so much by geography that even if you live across the side of the other side of the same valley it's possible that you've been exposed to illnesses that I've never experienced and so even if we have a friendly interaction it could end up killing me and so what you see is human beings, as they get closer to the equator, they become more ethnocentric. They tend to stick to themselves and not, um, ship, not have as many interactions between groups. And the consequence is that you get more languages because, of course, when people don't talk to each other anymore, their, their languages diverge. You get more religions for the exact same reason. Hmm. And you get people you know, emphasizing friend and family and not wanting to be open and experience people from new and different places, a sort of a fear of strangers. And and that would have made really good sense for our ancestors because they've got no medical abilities. They don't understand how illness works. You came up to me and you shook my hand and you seemed friendly, but now I'm sick. And, and so, you know, literally, in truth, you did cause it, but to our ancestors, you probably meant it. And so, and so we do see more of that closer to the equator. Yeah, we do. And we, but we also see what, what 
what underlies that is this sort of symbolic form of prejudice, whereby if you do things differently from me, particularly if those things surround food or sexual practices, then I think what you're doing is wrong. It's not just different, it's wrong. And of course, that may, I moralize it, and it makes sense, because anything that you do different from the way I do with regard to food or sexual practices poses a different disease vector than what I've been exposed to. And so your different practices could literally make me sick if I come into contact with them, you know, in an ancestral world. And so we create this form of prejudice that's no longer just about competition over resources, but it's actually about, well, well the way we do things is right and the way they do things is wrong and, and perverse and demented and all that sort of thing. And unfortunately, you know, you see more and more of this as you get closer and closer to the equator. But of course, with modern humans moving all over the globe, that effect goes away. But nonetheless, the basic underlying tendency is still there in all of us and what's right and wrong the the morals that yes. guide our behaviors and cultures yep. exactly that's interesting and when when did you see that sort of occurring or when do you sort of estimate well, that yeah that's a good question i mean homo erectus um was all uh colonized all of africa almost all of europe and the lower half of asia so they would have in my guess is that they would have experienced this as well. And part of the reason that they would have, uh, we don't know how much conflict Homo erectus groups have with each other. There's just no evidence. We know lots of conflict between human groups, uh, Homo sapiens, but my guess is that Homo erectus was doing the exact same thing for the exact same reasons. Hmm. Yeah. Got to read your book. I want to encourage the audience to pick it up, The Social Leap. So it is available online. I'll stick the link in the show notes, guys, so check it out. Um, I just want to. I've got a bunch of questions I normally ask all guests, Bill, but um, mm-hmm. I just want to sort of wrap it up there with you and, and sort of ask you how your research and you know putting together this book, what what sort of indications about what makes us happy are still relevant and and how how do we do that? Yeah, that's a great question. And for me, what what this all tells us is that you want to look back to what made our ancestors successful. Because what evolution does is it motivates you by your emotions. Mm. It doesn't make you want to have babies because our ancestors didn't even know how to have babies. It makes you want to have sexual relationships. It makes you want to. It makes you feel nurturing to any babies that then came along. And so, for me, I, I look into our past and I say, well, what was mission critical for our ancestors? And then how? How do those things manifest themselves in our happiness today? And the things that, that probably won't surprise you, by and large, but the things that would have made them successful and made them survive, and that is things like community, retaining close bonds to the people that you've known the longest, good relationships, um, spending your time with people who matter to you. Uh, food was super important for our ancestors, and I think it's no accident that when we go out with friends, we often do so over meals. Mm. And so trying to take the time to, to, to be with close friends, to enjoy meals together is a real good recipe for happiness. But I would add a caveat here, and that is that the other side of evolution, the kind of giving with one hand and taking with the other, is that because happiness was so important to motivate us to do what was in our genes' best interest, evolution also basically ensured that we can't stay permanently happy. We work best if we get really happy when we achieve something and then we drop back to baseline because that motivates us to achieve something else. Otherwise, we would be, if we could stay permanently happy, then evolution would lose one of its best tools in getting us to behave. That's the ultimate ways. motivator. Yeah. And so, hmm. yes, it's, it's great to spend time with good friends. It's great to go out over meals. It's great to try to live in the present, to do all these sorts of things. Um, but at the same time, you have to remember these are going to give me happy moments. They're not going to make me permanently happier. Yeah. 
But those are the things that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of us are missing out on. I mean, I think even, you know, you talk about sitting in a cave with a fire and sharing stories, the opportunity to learn, um, you know, that growth factor is really important and, and certainly the, the reason for our success is, you know, the, um, the king race. Absolutely. And so what I would say is that learning and storytelling and all those are mission critical. They're super important to our life happiness across our entire lifespan. And then the key is how can we do that in a way that takes advantage of modern you know, contrivances like books and Audible and all that and simultaneously retain the social component because that would have been really important for our ancestors. And so I suspect that you know, just re- consuming a huge number of books – well, it's a nice thing. You learn a lot, but you haven't really satisfied the full part of your human goal, which is to also share those stories. And so for me, when I read a book that I really like, I also try hard to have a conversation about it because I think that's literally what yeah. we evolved to do. Yeah. And we didn't evolve to read, of course, but that's fine. That's a perfectly good way to get the material. It's not that different from hearing a story, but we do we, we did evolve to share it and to be part of a social group when we do that. Yeah, and there's like podcasts, there's people doing live talk exactly. shows, there's things like that. But even getting exactly. together with a friend or a you know, family member, whoever – and uh, yeah, talking about that book you read, and the, you know, I, I right. do actually do that with my father quite a bit, and um, there's some nice conversations. Yeah, exactly. And, and I actually kind of don't like to watch TV that much alone, and I, it's weird because I'm literally sitting next to someone, not talking to them. But I do like to watch with somebody else because then you share the experience, and sometimes you talk about it afterward. But sometimes, sometimes you don't even need to talk about the shared experience; you just know you had it. Yeah, yeah. I, but I wonder what the, um, you know, throughout evolution, the you know, the, the alone time to be with your own thoughts and I suppose creativity, a, a sense of yeah. um, expression too, would have come from us being able to cooperate and work together and um, become more specialized in certain skill areas. Absolutely. And so we certainly all still need some time to ourselves. Some people need more than others. Mm. Um, but at the same time, we are fundamentally social beings. And so what, what matters to us in the end is, is not just having the experience, but sharing that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Some really good insights, uh, Bill. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing tonight. I, I really do appreciate it. I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer. Um, it's a heck of a journey that you've just shared with us and a lot to think about. So thank you. Oh, totally my pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Guys, I want to um, just encourage you to check out Bill. Um, Bill, where can they find out more? Obviously, you've got your books. So I'll stick the link in the show notes. But where can they find out more about your work? Well, the easiest thing to do is just to Google me, and that'll bring them to my website, which has my publications. The book is obviously an easier entree to my work, but anyone who wants to can download any of my papers off my website, or if they see something they can't find, they can just shoot me an email. That's awesome. I'll um, stick some of those links in the show notes, guys, so check it out. This is... I can't remember the episode, 478, I think it was, Bill. So, um, wow. guys, jump online, the hidden white. No, sorry, 758. Wow, double wow. <laughs> double wow. Jump online, guys, check it all out. Bill, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Totally my pleasure. Cheers, guys. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. 
You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon